This morning, we are going to be just jumping right into our Wait and See series. I want to clear some things up in case you've been here uh, at the church for some of this series. One of the things that I had said, and I actually misspoke, one of the things that I said is we're actually going to finish up uh, this series on Christmas Day, and that is not true. Um, We've just extended... Um, we've actually extended this series one more week. So Christmas Day and Christmas Eve, we're going to have two identical services. And really within those services, um, it's just going to be just a great time for all the family to get together. And we thought it best that maybe that, that your first grader doesn't need to just hear me preach right now, that maybe your first grader just needs to come and listen to the Christmas story, um, just kind of really to, to learn and listen to what the true story of Christmas is. And who better to hear that from than your pastor? So that is kind of a course correction we've made along the way, and that's what's going to be happening on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and we will be finishing up, sliding into home base, if you will, um, with the last uh, message in this series, talking about how Jesus is our Prince of Peace in uh, two Sundays from now, and I can't wait for that. It's going to be awesome. But we have some work to do to get to that point. If you have your Bible, please open it up to Isaiah 9. This is where we've been for the whole series Isaiah 9, starting in verse 1, we're going to read through verses 7. I'm really just going to camp out on two words, but to get to the two words, we've got to get to the passage, and I want you to see the context um, that all of this is written, and we believe that as, as I'm teaching the Bible or you're even reading the Bible, the context is so important, that way we just don't draw things out and just take them um, and, and twist the meaning of them to something other than what God would really want for us. So um, we believe that is the best route to go. I don't know if, if you follow me on uh, social media, but a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go out with my dad. My dad and I, we do crazy things together. We go climb mountains and put on backpacks, and we go out and climb mountains in all sorts of weather. We've been rained on. We haven't been snowed on um, because it's Georgia, but we've been rained on, and we've had it where it's incredibly hot, incredibly cold. And two weeks ago, uh, had the opportunity to go out with my dad on a week-long hike. My dad's 67. That rocks, right? Um, I hope I'm doing that at 67 with my kids and grandkids, dragging them out to the woods, kicking and screaming if I have to. But uh, we went out, and we kind of experienced all of the weather right there within the course of a week. And it's a time that I would, I, I just, I really just love when my dad and I get away and we have these these excursions um, and spend some time together. And and, and, and oftentimes, one of the things that we can do, especially when it comes to social media, whether it's Instagram or I don't even know what you do on Snapchat. I'm on Snapchat, but I'm not on Snapchat. I'll explain that later if you want. But if you're on Instagram or, or on Facebook, one of the things that you can do is you can kind of like look at a picture and think that's, that's somebody's reality. And it's always been that reality. And they always see like the best version of us. You know what I mean? Like you always put the, whatever the best meal is, that's the meal you put on social media. You don't put macaroni and cheese, right? Like you just don't. I've never seen that. Maybe you do. And maybe your mac and cheese rocks. But if you're putting it, if you're putting, you know, box macaroni and cheese, you're not taking a picture of it and sharing it with all of your closest, quote unquote, friends. Not doing it. So one of the things that you can do, like when you look at that picture of my dad and I, and there's kind of a collage there, pictures of us doing our thing, is you could look at that and even look at me because I'm on stage and I'm teaching the Bible and I have the the title of pastor. You may look at me and say, well, wow, that's probably his life. That's always been his life. It's always been cheery. It's always been happy. And I bet he's always had this awesome relationship with his dad, which is not true at all. 
But if we just look at our social media, we can look just at this, this facade and we can start to think things are true, even if they're not true. As a matter of fact, uh, my, my dad and I, our, our relationship was very tenuous when I was growing up. I was super rebellious and I looked for somebody to blame for all of my issues. And most of those were put on his shoulders. And that was my fault. Now, he hadn't done some things perfectly. He, he was absolutely imperfect. And there were some, some things I, could, I think and I believe that he could have done better. But, but the struggle within my rebellious teenage years is I was trying to put an expectation that he would be perfect when that was absolutely never going to happen. But it wasn't until I learned at the age of 21 that I had a perfect heavenly father who loved me the whole time. So it was after learning and appreciating that I had a perfect heavenly father, then that I learned that I was starting to put too high of an expectation on my earthly father, that my heavenly father was completing me in every way that I needed to, and that I was putting an unfair expectation on my earthly father. You, you following so far? But if you just look at the outside and you look at the current situation, you say, wow, he's got it together. The relation seems to be whole. I mean, they were out there for a week and they were all by themselves. And it's like, you just can't get away from issues for a week. You know what I'm saying? You just can't. But the text that we're going to get into today is so emotionally satisfying where we've come so far within this series is we've talked about how Jesus is the Messiah and how he is the, the wonderful and counselor. Those two words in, in your Bible, some, some translations of the Bible, I believe, get this wrong. The older translations say wonderful, comma, counselor, and that's right. The translation that I actually will preach out of today says wonderful counselor, as if the word wonderful is a descriptive of the word counselor, and that's just not true according to the Hebrew text. I apologize. It's just not. But we've talked about how he is the marvelous or wonderful, and that, that, is, that is part of who his, he is, his Jesus' nature, and how he's a counselor. He gives us advice and counsel when we need it the most. But then also, what we jumped into last week, and we said that Jesus is mighty God. He is El Gabor. That's the, the Hebrew word or words. Gabor meaning mighty or a hero or warrior. And, and I don't know if you are this way, but like I'm a dude, and I think, man, it's like I just love that imagery of Jesus. He's just like, yeah, he's what I believe God should be. He is, he is that. He is that he has the strength that I want to have, the warrior. Um, and oftentimes we kind of neuter God where he's not a warrior, but he's almost more of a pathetic version of his true self, which he is a warrior, and yet he's loving and kind and patient and, and all of those things equally. And, and yet we get into today, in starting in verse 1, And what I want us to see is how awesome it is that the Bible makes sense of itself even when we can't put words around the things ourselves. We're going to see that. Help us to understand some key things about, uh, about Christianity, about the faith today. Starting in verse 1, this is what it says. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress... In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. 
This land today is still known as the Holy Land, which confirms this to be true. Verse 2 says this, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus himself in, in the gospel said that he is the light. On those living in the land of the shadow, living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. That's the God child. That would be, would be Jesus. For us, to us rather, a son is given. That Jesus would come in human form and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal or the passion or the devotion of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What I love about this, it's not the point of this necessarily, but what I love about this is confirmed in verse 7, is when Isaiah says this, approximately 700 years before the birth of Jesus, approximately 700 years, and he says, the passion or the zeal or the devotion of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That means that there was nothing going to get in the way of what God had already started. And perhaps for you, what you need to press in and listen to is, maybe God has started something in you, particularly if you're a Christian, he has started something in you, but it's not yet completely fulfilled in you because you have some emotional damage that's happened to you. You see, I believe that all of us have come in here with, with, this, with some basis of, of understanding this. When you say, or when I said, and you read, Everlasting Father, and we're going to talk about this. There's some, some issues with this text. We're going to really dig into it in, in a minute. But when, when you hear the word Father, I think no matter what culture you're in, no, no matter what your, your background, background has been, I believe when you hear the word Father, irregardless where you are in life, I think that does something emotionally to us. It either reminds you of this awesome earthly dad that you had who raised you and who supported you and who just helped sustain you and was comforting to you. And I hope that's your story. But, but if we're really honest, I believe that most of us would fall in a couple, other, couple in, in a couple of other categories. I believe that maybe one of the other categories, when you hear the word father, and for you, it's a sting. It's a sting of a father you never had, perhaps a father you never even met. And it's a sting, and it's a reminder, and at Christmas time, when everybody else, and we talk about, uh, we use words like joy, and peace, and hope, and family, and all of those words are great, and all fine and well, but at Christmas time, this is one of the most uh, depressing times for people who struggled with particularly issues with their own father. And every Christmas is a reminder, and maybe you have to get in the same room with this person. And now you're forced to be in the same room with this person you've never even seen eye to eye with for years. There's going to be hope at the back end of this. There's hope for you if you're in the middle of that situation. That was my situation. Was, past tense. 
So some of us, I believe, are, are we, we have just this earthly father and like such a healthy relationship, which is awesome. And I think some other people fit into the category of maybe they've just never had that father figure. Maybe there's just this longing, emotional longing within their own being. And they're like, I want this. I don't have this, but I need this. And yet maybe there's somebody else in another category. And at Christmas time, it's always wait and see this depressing feeling and cloud of emotion that hovers over you because you're reminded of, of the loved one who's not there and who used to be there. And you don't know what to do with that. And, and it's stirring emotionally, and you just, you just don't know what to do with that, and it's the rest of your life. You see, I believe that every one of us comes into, into the house today with some of that being our reality. Some of that is absolutely our reality. So what we're going to see in the middle of this is, is just the, the incredible way that Jesus offers care and comfort and his, the way he sustains us and the way that he loves us and how he can emotionally complete anything that's broken in you. Anything that's broken in you. And we can say amen to that. Now, when we went through verse 6, I'm going to read this again. Verse 6, if you're, if, if you're not a Christian, you're somebody, you're just kind of kicking the tires and coming back into church. This could kind of create some issues with you, and I just want to be honest with you. We're, we're going to go through part of this text, and it's going to be kind of more teaching. It's not going to be preaching. It's just kind of be teaching, and there's going to be some, some great application on the back end of this talk. But we've got to kind of wade through this stuff, and some of it, it may seem like high weeds for you, but I want to kind of just coach you through this text, because if you... If you didn't grow up in church, you probably have no understanding of, of what we're going to get into in just a minute. But if you uh, did grow up in church and you left church, I don't know the, I don't know the, the foundation of your, your belief. So I want us to, to go down and we're going to jump into some kind of complicated things, some nuts and bolts things. And we're going to see what God has to say about himself. Um, and I realize that seems so kind of, you know, out of this world. But, um, and if you're a Christian... Some of this you'll understand or believe, but I want to add just some scripture. So you're going to get a bunch of scripture. Um, I, I want you to hear what God's word says about himself and not what I say about God, because his weight always carries more weight than mine. Amen? So in Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, if you're a Christian and maybe you're not that far in your faith, you should look at this. And the thing that I've highlighted in yellow, you should look at this and say, how can Jesus, the Son of God, also be Everlasting Father? And that's a good question. That's a great question. And maybe you looked at that and you're kind of scratching your head. I'm like, Wonderful counselor, okay, I got that. Mighty God, yeah, I believe that he's got, he resurrected. Nobody has predicted and done that, so he's obviously God. And yet you look at everlasting Father, and you're probably scratching your head like, well, how can this be the case? How can this be the case? So I, I want to give you scripturally the reason how and why. But the reason why I need to do this is because of the two words that you see highlighted on the screen, everlasting and Father. Uh, the word everlasting is a noun, and the word father is a noun. 
Everlasting is not an adjective describing the Father. This has been the cause of a lot of doctrinal errors. This has been the cause of, of a lot of divisive things happening in church because they get this wrong. Because they start believing some things about God that are simply not true. So this becomes a very foundational thing to a, a person who calls himself a Christian. So I, I want this to kind of to, to put some, some meat to the bones of your faith, if you will. So the word everlasting, I've got to look this up because I get this wrong. The word everlasting is a masculine noun, and it's pronounced ad, and it's spelled the same way that you would think, A-D. So everlasting is a Hebrew noun, ad, and father is the Hebrew word ab. It's spelled ab, but it's, spelled, or it's pronounced av or av. So ad, ab is the way that you would write that out. These are two distinct nouns. This is not an adjective describing a noun. This has to be the very first thing that we start to understand. And this is the reason why it's important that you study the Bible for yourself. I just recommend of all the scriptures that I'm going to share, and I understand we come from all different walks of life, don't take my word for it, please. Look these verses up yourself. Try and prove me wrong by what the Word of God says. Not that I'm challenging you, but I, but I believe in the authority of it so much that I think it will stand the test of any question that you may have. So we're going to see Jesus at work in creation. In Genesis 1.1, a scripture you're probably familiar with, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God, the Hebrew word for God right here is the word Elohim. It is a, it is a plural noun meaning more than one, plural, right? Going back to English, you are welcome. So God is plural, more than one. It in itself, the very first verse of the Bible, the book of beginnings, which is Genesis, is, is mentioning that there is a plural God, that there is a God that exists in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that the three, the tri-unity, were together as a part of creation. So the tri-unity, which means that Jesus also was a part of creation. This is also confirmed in Colossians 1 in verse 16. This is what it says. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rules or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So not only is is Jesus where things created through Jesus, but they were created for Jesus. Confirmed. I love when the Old and New Testament, and anytime I have an opportunity to kind of show this to you, I want us to be rich in understanding of the Bible, that the Old and New Testament, they don't stand in conflict of one another. They actually partner with one another. So anytime that these types of things um, can be brought to your attention, this is what I like to do. Also, you see, not only was Jesus a, p- a part of, of, the, of creation, he's also a part of the Trinity. And by Trinity, I want to use a quote by someone I respect by the name of Mark Driscoll. And this is what he says, and this is one of the foundational beliefs of this church. So I understand we, we've, we've come from all different uh, faith backgrounds that are here, and I welcome that. But I just want you to know um, this is kind of what we believe. This is, this is to our core an unshakable core tenet of our belief at Dublin Bible Church, that the Trinity, the triunity is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, Spirit, who are each fully and equally God. 
This, this has to be something that even if you can't completely uh, explain this, this has to be something that you uh, believe if you're a Christian. This is, like I said, one of the main tenets of the belief here. Because if you get this wrong, you can start to believe that, that the Father is here when you need Him, the Son is here that, when you need Him, and the Spirit is there when you need Him. And yet you, you can start to think that they're splintered and that they actually don't work as one, but they do. As a matter of fact, all of their attributes are the same. Each one is distinct as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But they each are fully and equally God. Fully and equally God. Give you some scripture to put around that. Deuteronomy 6.4 in the, the Hebrew text and this of the Jewish belief, this would be um, the... The thing that they would, all the people in their family would know this. This is called the Shema um, for them in Deuteronomy 6, 4. It says, the Lord, our, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the Lord is one. It works as one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit works as one. Also, Jesus said this in Matthew 28, 19, a scripture that you are going to be familiar with if you've been here or you've been in church um, for very long. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the, what's the next word? Father and of the, and of the Holy Spirit. So even Jesus, within Jesus' own doctrine, he believed in a Trinitarian God. So even in his own being, and he goes through, and he says, and this is the, of course, coming from the Great Commission, he says, therefore, go and make disciples, not just in his own name, but in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Even within Jesus' doctrinal belief, he believed in the tri-unity of God. Also, John 1. If you, go, if you have your Bible, please go to John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. When we read this together, I'm going to add just a little bit of commentary to it to help your understanding, and then I'm going to read it a second time just as the Scripture flows, because this Scripture is it's kind of confusing too. I hope to not add to your confusion, but to add to your understanding. And this is what it says. In the beginning was the Word. Do you see the Word? Word is, sorry for the redundancy, it just flowed out that way. It is capitalized. That's making a reference to Jesus. So in the beginning was... Jesus, and the Word, Jesus, was with God, that being the Father and the Holy Spirit. And the Word, that's Jesus, was God, that means being equal to and distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit. He, Jesus, was with God, Father and Holy Spirit again, in the beginning when eternity began. Through Him, that's Jesus, all things were made. Jesus being the creator and sustainer of life and substance, and without him nothing was made that has been made. So now you see three different references, three different authors, separated by thousands of years, confirming the same thing. 
when in Genesis 1, 1, it says, in the beginning, God, Elohim, plural noun, God, the, God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, I, I showed you in Colossians what the Apostle Paul said, and now you see that uh, in, within the Gospel of John, he's confirming the same thing, that Jesus was, in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Thus confirming the same thing, that Jesus was a part of the Trinity. But also, what we celebrate at Christmas is not just the fact that Jesus um, is a partner in the Trinity, the triunity of God, but that God became flesh, that Jesus became flesh. And in Colossians 1, verse 15, it says this of Jesus. So Jesus in the flesh. It says that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. So if you want to know what God the Father is like, look what God the Son did while he was on earth. If you want to know the love of the Father, look at the life of God the Son, Jesus, and what he did while he was on earth planet earth and what he still does today, quite honestly. But he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So we don't have to scratch our head and say, well, what is God like? We have the authoritative word of God and we can go to it. And and it tells us particularly in the New Testament what Jesus was like and what our lives should be about if we're followers of his. Amen. So Jesus in the flesh. Also, I don't know how much more clear it can be than this, but in John 14, 9, you write this source down. It's a great passage of scripture. John 14, 9, I'm just going to quote just a small part of it. Um, it says, anyone who has seen me, this is what Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He says, so if anyone has seen me, they've also seen the Father. So what is he saying? He's saying that he and the Father are one. Just as the Shema in, in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and it says, the Lord our God is one. Now, Jesus is saying, I am one with the Father, which is also confirming what I told you and what we read together in Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, plural noun, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, was a part of, the, of creation. It was all created through and for Jesus. Then also we see in John one, and I'm almost through with this, but this is so important for us to have some understanding here. John 1, in verse 14, it says, The Word, that's Jesus, became flesh, and He made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That was Jesus' life, full of grace and truth. Another passage I think would be helpful for you. I'm not even going to read it, but it is Hebrews 1, starting in verse 1 through 3. Be helpful for you. But also you see, um, so not only was Jesus a part of creation, Jesus is a part of the Trinity. Jesus is also eternal. In Hebrews 13, 8, it says that Jesus Christ was the same yesterday as today and forever. Amen? That means that he is consistent. That means he's not wavering in what he's going to do. He's very consistent. He's very, uh, you just know exactly what he's going to do and how he's going to respond. 
that Jesus is the same. He was is the same in the past, uh, today, and forever. Jesus is consistent. He is eternal in his being. All of these things, I believe, don't stand in opposition to what Isaiah said in in. in chapter 9 in verse 6. It doesn't stand in opposition to it. To me, it fulfills it. When Jesus said that, that, I, that, that me and the Father are one, when it's mentioned in Deuteronomy 6 in verse 4 that, that the Lord is one, that it's complete in, even in creation, that Jesus says that, that, that the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit are one, this has to be something that just cements our belief. And not only cements our belief, it cements our, our, our needing to dig into the Scriptures more to find deeper understanding. Now, I will confess this. I don't believe that with Isaiah, I don't think that that was even his point in saying everlasting Father. I don't think his point is saying, hey, the main point of this is to talk about where Jesus fits in the Trinity. But I think because of where we are, that we need that extra understanding. I believe what he's really getting to here is he's, he's not just talking about the Messiah's role within the Trinity, but he's talking about the Messiah's character toward us. So it's the Messiah, it's Jesus' character toward us. There's something here that is, that is overwhelmingly beneficial for us emotionally. There's something here of just this idea that, that Jesus' love is father-like. And that it's everlasting, that means it's so consistent, that it's so true, that it's saying, it's the true is in our past, in our present, in our future. And it is, it's so what we need because our earthly father cannot perfectly do what our heavenly, prom, our heavenly father has already promised to do. And if we get this wrong, this becomes the very breakdown in every relationship that you have. If we don't embrace the love that the Father has for us that was expressed through the Son, Jesus Christ, if we don't start here, we will never be able to love or be loved by anyone else. It will be a continual stumbling block. And if we don't come to a place of surrender before Almighty God, understanding how much He loves us, we will be simply looking at the mirror and wondering why the rest of the world doesn't see things exactly like we do. But God is not that small. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said. He said there is, this particularly for a Christian, by the way, if you're not a Christian, we the Scriptures would not even say that you're a child of God. We want you to be. But the Scriptures would not even say that you're a child of God. But this, this quote is, is being referenced to, and he's talking about Christians. This is what Spurgeon said. There is no unfathering Christ, and there's no unchilding us. He is everlastingly a father to those who trust in him. So a question, just by looking at this quote, there's a question that you have to ask yourself, and I want you to just continue asking yourself this. This would be a great point of application for your life. Am I really trusting in him? Am I really trusting in his love for me? Have I really accepted his love for me? Am I even able to forgive someone else? And if you have not been able to forgive someone else, possibly it's because you've not truly experienced the forgiveness of your own sins. Because Colossians 3 tells us that we need to forgive just as Christ Jesus has forgiven 
us. That means you, you cannot be let off the hook by your past. And that doesn't mean that you've been necessarily let off the hook if you've been um, the person who has victimized someone else. But there's no unfather in Christ. That means that, that you may step out of the fellowship of God, but you can never step out of your salvation with Christ. There's no unfathering Christ. If you, are, if you have received Jesus Christ and if He is your personal Lord and Savior, you have done nothing to, to earn it, so you can do nothing to lose it. He keeps it, not you, not your good works, not your good attitude, not your church attendance, not how much you give, and not the church that you're affiliated with. He keeps that salvation secure in Him. There's no unfather in Christ, but there's no unchilding us. That means that he's not just going to let us go. And it means that when you make your next failure, and by the way, you're going to have a next failure. That means that the next time you put, you put your foot in your mouth, the next time you come home with an attitude that you should have uh, cleared up with God before you went into the house, that means the next time that you blow up with uh, your boss, the next time if you're a boss, you blow up with someone else. That means that, that in that moment, God didn't say, you know what, you're no longer my child anymore. There's no unchilding us. This is, this is how the love of the Father is expressed through Jesus, that our salvation is, is found in Jesus, kept secure within God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's kept secure in Him. So there's no unfathering Christ, and there's no unchilding us. He is everlastingly a father to those who trust in Him. Do you really trust in Him? Do you really trust in him? We're going to spend the next couple moments and just talk about some of the attributes of of God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. The the attributes are the same within the triunity of God. They're, They're so consistent. Their attributes are so consistent one to the other. But Jesus is first loving. He's first loving in John 15, 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. I heard a, a story of, of a, a group of American POWs during World War II. And they're in a prison camp, and it, this, this particular camp was a work camp, and their, their job was to go out and dig holes. How demeaning is that? Their job was just to dig holes. So each one of the the 20 men who were on this particular work camp, each one had the responsibility of taking care of their shovel. No matter what they were doing, they had to take care of their shovel. When they they went back to their barracks and place where they were staying at the camp, they had to have their shovel. When they went out to go to work, they had to have their shovel. When they came home, they had to have their shovel. It was at the end of the day, and these 20 men were now standing up, and they had to give an account for their shovel. So as they're standing up, and, and they're just being grilled by their captors and they're just being grilled and and they go through and they count the shovels and they only count 19 but they're 20 men so as they they count the 19 shovels the, the guard becomes irate and he's just ranting and raving and he says if the person who does the person who lost their shovel does not come forward right now i'm going to assassinate five of you so a 19 year old young man future bright future. Sure, dreamt of times where he would be able to go back and spend some time with his dad and go fishing with his dad and go back home to the United States to go 
live life after war and, and all of that, this 19-year-old man steps up and he says, I left my shovel. The guard became even more irate in front of, in front of everyone, and he wanted to make an example out of this guy, so he pulled this guy out of the crowd. He stuck a gun to his head and pulled the trigger. Man dropped. He died. Of course, there was just shock of, of the rest of the 19 who were standing there in this moment. Then later they went and did a recount of the shovels, and they actually found 20. But the reason why that young man stepped up is said, if someone's going to die, I would rather have one person die than five. What a great illustration and metaphor for Jesus that greater love has no one than this than one would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus considers you a friend. That he would do that for you. There's there's no greater expression of love than that. And that's how loved you are, that Jesus would do that for you as he did it for me. Another thing that we see about Jesus is his overwhelming consistency. He's just so consistent that he is the the same uh, yesterday, today, and forever. And our earthly father is not going to be this. He can't. Your mom is not going to be this. Your, your father figure is not going to be this. Your grandpa is not going to be this. Your grandma is not going to be this. Your boss is not going to be this. The, the, the substance that you, you kind of tend to go to for your, your source of emotional health is not consistent. It's a roller coaster. And Jesus, the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, 8, he says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How much more consistent does he have to be? That is the emotional stability that we long for, and that is the emotional stability that he alone can provide. He's not just consistent, though. He's not just loving. He's supporting. I love what the psalmist said of God in in Psalm 18, verse 35. He says, you have given me your shield of victory. That, That God has given me, the psalmist says, you have given me a shield of victory. Your right hand supports me. Your help has made me great. See, we would expect that that it would say, well, God, you have made your name great. But but it's God is so supporting of us. Jesus is so supporting of us. The Holy Spirit is so supporting of us that that it says in this text, not that he just makes himself great because he's already great. He doesn't need to make himself great. He already is. But he says, your help has made me great. Your help has supported me in my time of need. Your help has has provided me just this emotional stability that I've longed for my whole life in supporting me. Also, you see a sustaining feature to Jesus, to God, to the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy 1.12, it says this, For I know the one in whom I trust. Notice how I ask you, what are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? Look what it said here. He says, he declares it. He says, for I know the one in whom I trust. 
And I am sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. Look how consistent the Bible is. Consistent, different author. It's consistent that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's saying the same thing here. He says, there was a moment where I entrusted my life to him. We just got done talking through all of the many, not all, but many of the things that we've been entrusted with, that we've been entrusted with the future. We've been entrusted with time. We've been entrusted with money. We've been entrusted with relationships. We've been entrusted with a life. And in 2 Timothy, he has such confidence of the sustaining value of God. And he says, for I know the one in whom I trust, and I am sure that he, not I, but he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him, him being Jesus, until the day of his return. He says, so I'm not just trusting in myself to sustain me. I'm trusting in a power far greater than myself to sustain me. I'm trusting in God to sustain me. Lastly, Jesus is comforting. God the Father is comforting. The Holy Spirit provides comfort. The Holy Spirit is also known as the Comforter. All praise, this is uh, from 2 Corinthians 1.3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. The source of all comfort. You see, if you're in, in the pool of you had a healthy relationship. Maybe you have a healthy relationship with your father. And I just say, rock on. That is amazing. Praise God. Rejoice in that. That's awesome. And with that, you would probably understand that there are some things that he can't do that your heavenly father longs to do. But also, if you're in, in some of the other categories, and maybe your, your relationship is a little bit more strained, maybe you need to lean back on this last attribute of God that I just spoken to you that he is the source of all comfort. He is the source of all comfort. I, I started this talk off with uh, the story about my dad and I. And I just want you to maybe have a more clear picture on some things. In my rebellious youth, I, like perhaps you, just look for someone to blame. And he was the one who was closest, so he got most, unfortunately. But it wasn't until I turned 21 and I gave my life to Christ. I was still working on airplanes at the time. I was still in the Navy at the time. I was far away from any pulpit or any stage like you see me today. But it was in the midst of that when I received Christ and I realized in that moment that I had a heavenly father who loved me and forgave me. All of a sudden, I just wasn't looking at, at the mirror, so to speak, and just how I saw the world. Instead, God was peering into me and I saw that I had, I had done some things wrong too. I realized that I had, I had violated my relationship with God and that my whole life had been a violation of that relationship with God. 
And I also learned and understood, and it becomes so spiritually and emotionally satisfying for me when I gave my life to Christ, because when I gave my life to Christ, I started, I started, I, I didn't finish it, I'm still not finished, but I started the process of being able to forgive others. Because it was after I realized that I, had to, that I needed forgiveness, could I then start forgiving other people? Because then I realized that I wasn't just the picture of perfection. I was part of the problem. I don't want to be harsh, more harsh than what I need to be. But I just want to say to you, maybe you're part of the problem. Maybe you need to go before Almighty God and just ask for for some forgiveness. Maybe there's some things that you have to just allow the Spirit of God to just kind of pull out of you, accept what you've done wrong. So then you can start to forgive others. What I also know is I, I was not going to be able to be the, the earthly father that I even knew that I should be or that I could be. If I didn't have a heavenly father who loved me. I knew that that was, that was impossible for me. But it was the moment that I received Christ and things started to change. And it was kind of like an onion. Just like peeling back the layers of uck. You know what I mean? It's just like just the layers of just of the messiness that was my life. And as they peeled those layers back, then I was actually able to love my wife and love the, my, just my son at the time. I was able to love them in a way that I had never even anticipated and I never expected. Because my heavenly father loved me unconditionally. Christian, your heavenly father loves you unconditionally. What confessing do you need to do? What repenting do you need to do? What conversation do you need to have over this next season? What, what dinner do you need to make sure that you attend so you're there because of what you just heard? Maybe there's a text that you need to send. Maybe there's a, a conversation. Maybe there's some confessing. Maybe there's some repenting. Maybe there's just simple acts of reconciliation that you have been part of the problem but now you, by God's strength, need to be part of the solution. What is that? What is that? Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that you are, honestly, you're, you're more loving than, than what words can even express. I thank you that you, you are so consistent, and that does not mean boring. It just means that you're so consistent to satisfy all of the longings that we have, spiritual longings and relational longings and emotional longings. You, you are so consistent, and yet you're so supporting that you support us and that you, you can make our lives great. And God, that you sustain us day by day, moment by moment, breath by breath, relationship by relationship. And God, that you're, you're there not just to sit over us with a heavy hand to tell, of us, tell us of all the things that we've done wrong, but yet you're there in the midst of that to comfort us. Father, for the, for the person who's come in here and maybe they're, 
they're kind of an emotional wreck. Maybe they've kind of believed a lie that they're not never actually supposed to express any emotion at all. And that's just been a lie that Satan has wove maybe generation to generation. God, I pray that they would be transparent as you want them to be transparent with those that are closest to them. I pray that for the, the, the person, I pray that God, as the person, you're, you're directing them to sit at a, at a dinner table or sitting around a living room around this time and, and, and we're just kind of, they're in a wait and see, God. They're just, maybe this expectation of, of uh, just don't know what to do, don't know what to say. I pray that you would just give them the strength and you give them the words. As I know you will give them opportunity. Thank you, God, I guess most of all, for loving us despite us. Amen. Amen.